You are listening to Cedar Hills Community Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. A place to be loved, a place to belong, and a place to serve. I want to answer, try to answer a question this morning, and the question is, what is the value of hope? And I'm going to do that by continuing our little study on the book of First and Second Peter. So we're in First Peter chapter 2. So if you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to take that out. First Peter chapter 2. And I was thinking about the whole chapter, but I really want to focus on just a couple verses. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word and it's true and we can rely on it. I've got some logos I want to throw up on the screen here, some different company logos, and see if you can identify what company these are. Do you know who these are? Yeah, who? Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Facebook. These happen to be the five biggest brands in 2020. They actually were the same five last year. Um, would anybody like to guess the cumulative value of these five companies? Anybody? It's over $800 billion. So there's a lot of value placed on these. And as you study brands, you start to recognize it's not always just the product that adds value to the brand. It's the image that can add value to the brand. So Apple's probably the best example of this. Apple is a brand that's all about imagination, about beautiful design, about creativity and innovation, and free thinking. Even when it started, it was kind of about uh, countercultural rebellion even. So the people who own and use Apple devices are thought to be that kind of people, more creative, more innovative, more free thinking, that kind of thing. It adds value because the, the brand has that uh, thing. And the Apple customers are very loyal to their, I don't know if we've got some Apple people here or not, but the average Apple customer is very loyal to their brand. They love Apple. Apple adds value to their life. And they would tell you that. Okay, we're going to show another set of logos up here from a different set of businesses. Those are all tech. You know what these brands are all related to? Yep, athletic apparel. So these brands are about uh, the things we wear, clothes and sporting goods, things like that. You know which one is the top brand by far of these? Nike. Okay, the Nike swoosh. Did you know that Nike was the goddess, the Greek goddess of victory? So they were pretty intentional when they selected this, and the logo is supposed to represent two things, to kind of mimic the idea of like a wing, like the wing goddess of victory, and also to, to be a swoosh. It's the sound of speed and power and motivation, swoosh. The Nike swoosh is maybe one of the most famous brand. And I've got a question. The items of clothing that wear these particular brands, especially the Nike swoosh, are more expensive than if you buy the same kind of clothing without the brand. The brand adds value. Why? 
Is it because of the style of the clothes? Is it because of the quality of the clothes? Is it because of the image that's attached to the clothes? Yep, it's all about image, right? But now I have a question, and it's kind of a trick question. Does wearing clothes with the Nike swoosh make me faster or more powerful or more motivated? What do you think? If I'm wearing my Nike swoosh shirt when I run, do I run faster? Okay, you think about that for a while. These things actually do add value and they can actually change our identity. They can actually change our behavior. So that uh, there may actually be, uh, it may be a better run the day I wear my Nike swoosh shirt. It just might be. Okay, I got one more brand logo to throw up there and we want to explore the value of this brand logo. Do you know what this is the, the brand logo for? Yeah, Cedar Hills Community, good, good job. Uh, what is the value of this brand and where does its value come from? Okay, this is what we want to try to figure out and we're going to do that by looking at the words that Peter gave us in his letter, the second chapter, kind of the last part of it. So we talked about this a few weeks ago when we said that Peter wrote the letters that he wrote to people who were struggling a little bit with their identity and uh, the reason for that was because they were followers of Jesus, but they had been scattered all over Asia. And they were being persecuted. They were facing trouble, difficult times. They were having a lot of hardship to the point where some of those who were following Jesus were saying, is it worth it to continue to follow Jesus in these troubled times? My identity as a Christian might actually be adding trouble to my life because I'm being persecuted, I'm being martyred for my belief. Is it worth it to keep following Jesus? That was part of the question that these people were asking and that Peter was trying to address. Another way to ask this question might be to ask, what is the value of the Christian brand? What is the value of the Christian brand when we're facing trouble or hardship or looking for hope? Peter, I think, gives us some suggestions about the value, and I want to share a few of those. These are suggestions that he gives to help us recognize the value that comes from our identity as followers of Jesus. The first thing Peter wants to say to us is this. Get your story straight. The prevailing story told by the people of God in Peter's day was this. If I'm suffering, then I'm not worthy. If I'm dealing with pain or failure or disobedience or sin, then my value is diminished in the eyes of the people who are looking at me and in the eyes of God. This is the way that they looked at it in that day. Value was directly related to performance. And if a person failed frequently, or if a person committed one of the whopper sins, one of the really big sins, that person was doomed. They're done for. This was once Peter's understanding about how we valued our performance. Does anybody remember the story of what happened in John chapter 9? In John chapter 9, Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and they come upon a man who was blind. He was actually blind from the time of his birth. 
And as soon as they see this man born blind, the disciples turn to Jesus and they ask him the question, why is this man born blind? What is the cause of this? Is it because he suffered, because he sinned or because his parents sinned? They tied this man's blindness directly to performance. Somebody must have done something wrong in order for this man to be blind. That's how they assessed his worth. Peter actually applied the same standard to himself. One of his famous indiscretions was when Jesus was arrested and in the courtyard, and three times Peter denied knowing Jesus. Right after these three denials, you know what the next thing Scripture says happened? Peter went out and wept bitterly. Right after he denied Christ, he went out and wept bitterly. The reason he wept bitterly was because of his failed performance. He now no longer had value. He thought he was done for. He had turned his back on Christ. That's it. This was the way everybody in that day measured their worth by their ability to perform. But by the time Peter wrote this little letter to the people in Asia... He had a very different story about our value. Here's what he had to say about it. He said, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into light. Once you were not a people, But now, you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's the new story that Peter's telling. He's telling the story, you think you've done something so bad that God is going to turn his back on you? You're a special possession. You think you have done something that makes you not worthy? You are a royal priesthood. You think you are not good enough? You are a holy nation. When we are tempted to think that we are not worthy, Peter wants us to tell a different story. He wants to remember the story that we are worthy because we are God's special possession. And he's saying to us, get the story straight. Once you walked in darkness, but now you're walking in light. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you are receiving mercy. This is the story that Peter wants us to tell. Now we have a lot of stories we tell each other nowadays, and there's one kind of dominant story in our society that we often tell, and it goes something like this. You have to earn your way. You have to prove yourself. You have to measure up. You have to do better. You have to work harder in order to be a success. Our identity is tied to success, and success is tied to performance. So we often, in our culture, tell the story that we value winners. Those people who have performed up to expectation, they have earned the victory. This is the story we tell. And this story has some consequences. One of the consequences is we're very motivated to go out there and work hard. We're motivated to try to succeed. That's part of the consequence of the story. 
But another consequence of this story is actually despair and unhappiness. When people feel like they can't measure up, they lose hope. We live in a country with arguably the greatest success ever in history, and yet we live in a country that is more heavily medicated than any time in history because we're not happy. And there's some very shocking statistics about the suicide rate, which happens to be at an all-time high. More men and women and children have decided my life is not worth it than at any other time. This is a consequence of not getting our story straight. Peter says, get your story straight. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special possession of God. That's who you are. And your performance doesn't change that. Get your story straight. The second thing Peter says to us is get your address right. Now, when we started this study a couple weeks ago, we looked at the opening verses, which talked about a living hope into an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. And the images that Peter gives to us right at the beginning of this book are very uh, kind of a heavenly image that we are looking forward to this day when we are going to be united with Christ in heaven. And this is an inheritance that nothing can ever remove. And then he starts talking about how we live in a world filled with trouble. He's talking about a heavenly realm and an earthly realm. Last week, Steve did the same thing. He was talking about this tension that we experience between this call to be a holy people, that we are holy and perfected, that we're made right in Christ, that all this is going great, and yet, at the same time, we're living in a world that's filled with sin and temptation and corruption. And we have to deal with this tension between are we holy or are we sinful? These two passages raised the question for me, where do we live? Is our address heaven or earth? What do you think? Where is our address, heaven or earth? And the answer is yes. We have a foot in both places. Uh, first of all, I do really like the old gospel song that says, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. That's a great image because I think we are looking forward to uh, time in heaven, but that doesn't tell the whole story. We actually believe that